around verse 10. We started our study in the book of Revelation last week. And just a real quick reminder of the introduction here as we get ready to get into the book a little bit deeper. Just a couple things. Please remember it is the book of Revelation, not the book of Revelations. There's only one Revelation. Um, Number two, remember the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is found in verse one, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, to all things that he saw. The purpose of the book is the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse one. As we mentioned last week, if you're coming into the book of Revelation expecting to have every single one of your end times questions answered, you're going to be disappointed. That is not the purpose of the book. In fact, you don't even get any end times until chapter 6. So the first, really, five chapters here are setting the tone of the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. That word unveiling is we get our word apocalypse. A lot of times when we think of the word apocalypse, we think of end time scenarios. But really, apocalypse is the unveiling. And once again, imagine a statue that you do not know what it looks like, but there's some type of drape over it, and the person reveals it. And it reveals it very quickly, and you get a chance to see. And that's what's talking about here, is the idea of these things are happening, and these things are going to happen shortly. These things are going to happen quickly. Now, not only that, you're blessed when you do this. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. This blessing is also repeated at the end of the book. So we're blessed to read this book. We're blessed to hear this book. We're blessed to be able to teach this book. But the real blessing is the unveiling of who Jesus Christ is. Of course, we will get it in time. So we'll get into all of that second coming, antichrist, rapture, tribulation. We'll get into all of that. But always remember the primary purpose of the book is understanding deeper who Jesus Christ is. So with that being said, let's continue on with this. We covered verse 9 last week. We did the first half of chapter 1. We're going to do the second half of chapter 1 here. And we're going to get into the introduction of chapter 2 of the letters to the seven churches. But it says, verse 9, I, John, remember this is John the Apostle. This is not John the Baptist. This is not him. This is John the Apostle. Both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice. The vo- Excuse me. I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. Patmos we talked about last week. It looks like, according to church tradition, John has been exiled here. The Bible does not state clearly why he's there, so anything we do is speculation past that. But church tradition has him being on the island of Patmos, a very rocky island. If you've ever looked at Patmos, it's not a destination vacation spot. So it's hardly possible that John chose to go there on his own, but we do not know for sure. But while he is there, and this possible idea of being exiled, God speaks to him. It really shows us, as we mentioned last week, that no matter where you're at, what state you're in, if your ears are open to what the Lord wants to speak, you can hear. And the Lord can use those very, very difficult times. But I really want to start now the breakdown with that phrase in verse 9. And the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. Patience. How many times have I heard as a pastor someone say, I need to pray for patience? And as you know, the old joke goes, if you pray for patience, there's only one way to learn patience, is to go through things that try your patience. Same thing, if you decide one day to get up and say, you know what, I really want to love people more. God's going to bring the most unlovable person into your life. It's going to be a coworker, it's going to be a neighbor, it's going to be your spouse, it's going to be your kid. It's going to be somebody. And you're going to realize, how do I love this unlovable person? And God's going to say, you asked to know how to love. So if you're saying, I want to be able to handle life better, I want to have patience, I want to have endurance, guess what's going to happen? It's probably a flat tire out there waiting for you right now. 
These are the things how we learn. The only way you learn patience and endurance is to go through things that try your patience into your endurance. It doesn't just happen. So if you're in a situation right now in life and you're stopping and thinking, it just feels like it's one more thing after another. Did you happen to pray for patience? Did you happen to pray for endurance? This is a biblical concept is that we need to learn to stay true no matter what we're going through. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm to the end, to the end. We don't quit halfway through. Hebrews 3.14 goes on to say, for we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. There's a theme in the book of Hebrews as you hang on to the end. That's why Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the anchor to our soul. Because what do you do with an anchor? You drop anchor and you stay right there. So, Lord, I'm just going to hold on to you till the end. Can you go with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 12? Sometimes in life, sometimes in our Christian walk, we're just holding on. Please remember that the Bible says that we have a shield of faith. What's the shield there for? The shield is there to protect us when people are shooting at us, the fiery darts of the wicked one. Sometimes in life, the only thing you do is just cower behind that shield of faith and say, Lord, I trust you. Because that's all you got. You're enduring to the end. Hebrews chapter 12, please, start in verse 1. Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance, there's our word, the race that is set before us. Now, note a couple things here as you look at this race in verse 1. First off, it's a race. Now, it doesn't mean you're competing. It means you're trying to finish. Number two, please note you're running. Now, if I would take a poll of you right now of who actually enjoys running, be very, very few of us that would raise our hand. I actually like running. I also like mornings. This is why I'm one of the best people you could ever meet because I'm a morning person and I like to run. My wife is the complete antithesis of that, but that's marriage counseling for another day. But the point is right here, generally speaking, people don't like to run. They don't like to race, that idea. And this is why we need endurance. And please note the race that is set before us. I don't choose the course of my life. So some of you are on a race right now you don't want to be on. And you're like, I didn't choose this course. You didn't. The Lord set it for you. And he's asking you to run with endurance that race that is set before you. So how in the world am I supposed to do it? The answer is found in verse 2. Looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That, that's really Revelation 1 right there. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. So if you have the beginning, if you have the end, you don't need to worry about anything in the middle. And so if we have the author and finisher of our faith, that means he has taken care of me from the beginning of my salvation to the end of my salvation. That means in the middle of my salvation, I just need to, verse 2, keep looking unto Jesus. I'm willing to bet for all of us in this room, when we start to really struggle in life, why is it? Because we quit looking unto Jesus. We start looking at a diagnosis. We start looking at the numbers in a checkbook. We start looking at relationships, social things, etc., and we start to sink. We need to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And one last point before we go on. Please note, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He endured the cross for the joy that was going to be coming. Right now in your life, you may say, okay, you're talking about joy. There is no joy in my life right now. The joy may be coming. And when I say the joy may be coming, that also may mean the joy may be coming eternally. 
Sometimes in this world we live in, there's not a lot of joy. Sometimes there's not a lot of peace, but God can give us a peace that surpasses all understanding, and he can give us a joy because I can look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith. I take my eyes off the scenario right now, and I keep my eyes on the Savior that's coming later. So enduring right now, enduring, back to Revelation chapter 1. So when it says right there in verse 9 that John, with the patience, the endurance of Jesus Christ, that's something we can still learn from. So difficult circumstances, we need to learn to endure in God. Now, he was in the spirit on the Lord's day, verse 10. We're not gonna get dogmatic about the Lord's day. A lot of times when people think of the Lord's day, they start thinking of Sunday. Please remember in the Bible, the idea of the Sabbath was from sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. The church met on the first day of the week, which is Sunday, because that was the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Generally speaking in the Bible, you do not see the Lord's Day as being representation of Sunday right there. So what a lot of people believe, it's more of a reference to the Lord's Day. If you like remember the Old Testament, the day of the Lord, that this was God's day to move and do something. Once again, I would not be dogmatic about this in any way whatsoever. But as John is doing this, this voice that is speaking in verse 10, it's the voice of a loud trumpet. Trumpets are throughout the Bible, especially you see in the book of Numbers, multiple references to them using the silver trumpets to, to tell Israel what to do. So you're going to see trumpets throughout the book of Revelation. It's the voice to command Israel when to move out, when to say. That's how they communicated. And this idea of the trumpet right here being the loud voice is communicating to John as well. Now, he is commanded, he's commanded to do this, to write this stuff down. But look at the wording here that happens. Verse 11. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Remember, Alpha and Omega is the first and last letter of the Greek alphabet. And what, excuse me, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. That's what chapters two and three are about, is those seven churches there. We'll get into that. But I want to look at what he describes himself as in verse 11 right here. It is the idea of the first and the last. Now, some of your translations you know, may not have that idea of first and last, but you see it's been repeated many times before, the idea of the first and last there in verse 8. You see it also in verse 17. So there's a theme here of Jesus being the first and the last. This is vitally important. This is one of the strongest claims to deity of Jesus in the Bible, and I want to show you this. Let's go on a tour. Can you go with me to Isaiah, please? Isaiah 41. you ever get into a conversation with a, uh, a group, a, a call to false religion that questions the deity of Jesus, if they are willing to sit down and truly look at what the Bible says, that you can take them down this path and really try to show them the claim that Christ is making here in Revelation. And we have to go back to Isaiah 41 to set the scene. Isaiah 41, let's start in verse 2. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave him as the dust to his sword and driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. So all these rhetorical questions, who's done this? I, the Lord. The first and with whom the last I am, he. Lord, all caps there. That means that's the covenant name of God. That's Jehovah or Yahweh. And so therefore it shows the importance of his name. So let's just jump over one more chapter, please. Isaiah, uh, excuse me, a few more chapters. Isaiah 44. 
This goes one step deeper now. Isaiah 44. Thus says, verse 6, Thus says the Lord, same word there, Jehovah Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Now look what it adds, though. Besides me, there is no God. Now that's really important. No one's debating anything thus far. That's clearly Jehovah, that's clearly God, clearly Yahweh, and besides me, there is no God. Now, back to Revelation chapter 1. Let's go with the first reference to this. Revelation chapter 1. We've already mentioned there in verse 11, the idea on the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Now, some people may question that because they're going to talk about maybe translation issues or they're going to say that that is Jehovah Yahweh speaking and it's not referencing Jesus. doesn't matter because jump down, please, to the end, verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me and said, saying to me, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last. Jesus is taking that title from Isaiah 41 and 44, applying it to himself, where in Isaiah 44 says, there is no other God but me. So Jesus is making the claim to deity. Now, if anybody wants to question that that's Jesus, just read verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. Making it abundantly clear that this is not Jehovah. This is not Yahweh. This is Jesus taking the claim of deity from Isaiah 41 and 44, where he says, besides me, there is no other God. That's the kicker to this. So it's just important to see these passages. You will not find the word Trinity in the Bible. But when you're studying out the Bible, you're going to see all these references to the Trinity. Where you just see these passages where Jesus is saying, guess what, I'm the first and the last. The only way he can claim to be the first and last is he is God himself. You know, another good example is who raised Jesus from the dead. The Bible says that the Father rose Jesus from the dead, the Spirit rose Jesus from the dead, and Jesus himself said, I, I rose from myself from the dead. Who was part of creation? The Father was part of creation, Jesus was part of creation, the Spirit was part of creation. So you just see all these references throughout the Bible where all three of the Trinity make same claims. The only way they can make the same claims is if they're the same. And that is the Trinity right there. So it's just really important when you see that in Revelation chapter 1. That's one of those passages that really clearly speaks that Jesus is claiming a title that is very important to understand the deity that's what's going on. So now what starts here in verse 12, and really 12 through uh, about 16, is a description of Christ. Now it's not a physical description, because here's the reality. How do you describe the indescribable? And what you have in verses 12 through 16 is describing the indescribable. That's not original thought, but I read that somewhere and I thought that really resonates with me. How do you describe something indescribable? This is, through the Spirit, the way to describe Christ. And what you're going to see is all these different references to him. And all these references just take us into the Old Testament. You're going to see a lot of Ezekiel. You're going to see a lot of Isaiah because you're really describing God. So let's just start with the first description. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven gold lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as is refined in a furnace. His voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars out of his mouth, went, excuse me, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid, I am the first and last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. 
If you remember correctly last week when we talked about how to determine the literal versus the symbolic in the book of Revelation, we said the context determines it. Please note a lot of the times here in this description you see the word like. John is trying to describe that he was like this. So what does this mean? Let's go back and start to break it down. Verse 12. First thing you see is the seven golden lampstands. We don't need to worry about what trying to figure that is because verse 20 tells us what the seven golden lampstands are. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw on my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So no worries there. Seven lampstands represent the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. It's really important to note that Jesus is not the lampstand. He's standing in the midst of of the seven lampstands in verse 13. He's not the lampstand. He's in the midst of them, which shows the purpose and point of the church is supposed to be all about Jesus Christ because he is there in the midst of it. When the church loses its focus on Jesus, eventually that lampstand is just going to flicker away. Now, that can happen overnight or it can happen in decades. And these churches that at one time were vibrant, filled with people, and all of a sudden you look back over the years and say, what happened? At one time or another, the lampstand started to go out. When that lampstand started to go out, Jesus is no longer in the midst of it. The church is no longer blessed. It's not being used for God's purposes right there. Next description of him. He's described as the Son of Man, verse 13. Really important phrase. This is Jesus' go-to phrase to describe himself. Go with me, please, to Daniel chapter 7. This is the phrase in the Gospels that he uses to describe. Son of Man, Daniel chapter 7. This passage is really important to be able to understand what this word means. Okay, verse 13, please, of Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, there's the phrase, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. When you see Son of Man, it's that idea of divine and human mixed together. God, man, Jesus Christ, but with authority. This is really important here. It is God, man, divine, human, but it's authority. Because when you read verses 13 and 14, really note the emphasis of authority. So he's introduced as the Son of Man in verse 13. And they bring him near, and look what happens in 14. He's given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is not just a temporary, it's everlasting. It will not pass away. Please note the repetition there. If something is everlasting, you shouldn't have to say it doesn't pass away, but it's really trying to emphasize this, and it goes one step further in 14 that it cannot be destroyed. Well, of course, if something's everlasting... That means it is not going to pass away and it can't be destroyed. Three times they're trying to tell you who this is. This is an everlasting divine human ruler that is God, man, Jesus Christ. So when Jesus calls himself the son of man, please understand what he's actually claiming. He's actually claiming right here to be what Daniel 7 says. This ruler that is going to rule through the God, because he is God, with this everlasting dominion. And to go one step further with this, go with me, please, to Mark 14. I want you to see these terms put together, then, in the New Testament. Mark 14. Mark 14, we have the trial of Jesus. 
And I want you to read the testimony here, what's going on. So, verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it to these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, Christ, Messiah, anointed one? Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man, there's a phrase, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, what further need do we have a witness as you have heard the blasphemy? What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Please note what's going on here in Mark 14. You start seeing all of this deity come together. Verse 61, he's the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the fulfilled prophecy to save the people from their sins. Next, he is the son of the blessed, son of God, claimed a deity. Next one, 62, son of man, fulfilling Daniel chapter seven. That's why you see in 63, the high priest tearing his clothes. But please remember, according to the Old Testament law, the high priests were not allowed to tear his clothes. So the high priest tearing his clothes here is a huge deal, and now you see why in verse 64 they say blasphemy and he's condemned to death. Because in this short little passage, Jesus is making the claim, I am the Messiah, Son of God, Son of Man, fulfillment of Daniel chapter 7. I am all of this. And that's why you see the response. So when you see those phrases where Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, please understand what he's really claiming. He is claiming Daniel chapter 7, He's claiming Messiah. He's claiming Son of God. He's claiming deity. And that's why being called the Son of Man is such a huge deal. And that's why it's so important to truly understand what that word means. Back, please, to Revelation chapter 1. Let's pause real quick. Anybody got any quick questions about anything here thus far? Good. Ryan. Uh, verse 27. Correct. Uh, depends who you ask. Um, we'll get into this more a little bit later here, maybe today, but also next week. That word messenger is very important. They're angels. Like Ryan is saying there, the word angel can mean messenger, and there's a debate on what that means. Because if you get into Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, if you look at how the letters are introduced, they're all introduced to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? So it could mean the idea that they're speaking to a human leader of that church, or it could be speaking to the idea of a heavenly authority that's over that church. Once we get into Revelation 2 and 3, the evidence seems to point a little bit more towards it being a human representation, because in these letters, they're called to repent, they're called to change their ways, and it seems like the evidence is pointing more towards a human representation of a messenger that has been sent there by God to take care of this church rather than a heavenly angelic messenger. Um, once again, it's not worth debating over, but in the context of the letters, it sure sounds like it's more talking about a human person than necessarily an angelic person, but we'll get into that a little bit later. That's a good question, though. Anybody else have anything before we go on? Okay, let's continue down the description. So, verse 13, he's clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. That is the description of the priests from back in Leviticus. So, Jesus is having the claim right here to the priesthood, that he is the high priest. If you remember that from the book of Hebrews, he's the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. He is the priest that will last forever. He's the priest that can offer the sacrifice for the sins. He is that priest doing that there. So, the entire description of him is the idea of the priesthood that's been going on. 
Uh, next one we have right there, verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like the flame of fire. The white hair, white wool, we just read that back in Daniel chapter 7. The Ancient of Days, Daniel chapter 7. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and his wheels a burning fire. So the description of the white hair, etc., represents, once again, a claim to deity from Daniel chapter 7. Eyes of fire, you're going to see that repeated a couple times here in Revelation, Revelation 2, Revelation 19, the eyes of fire. It seems to carry the idea of piercing eyes, the eyes that can see everything, the eyes of, the, the eyes of wisdom, the eyes are the eyes of judgment, because in the Bible, fire carries the idea of judgment. So if he has eyes of fire, it's like his eyes see. He knows what's going on in my innermost being. So therefore, if I'm living the life outwardly but inwardly i'm a hypocrite the eyes of fire are able to discern that and perceive that and it goes right with the next description of him because the next description is verse 15 the idea of fine brass or bronze and the bible brass and bronze carries the idea of judgment uh, the tabernacle it said that there was over five thousand pounds of bronze given for the tabernacle it's a lot of bronze folks it's interesting when you think about the tabernacle and the temple when you would walk towards the tabernacle and temple Unless you're the high priest, no one's ever getting into the Holy of Holies. So no one's ever going to see the Ark of the Covenant. Even if you were the high priest, you can make a case that you're not even going to see the Ark of the Covenant because the temple didn't have windows in there, and it was dark, it was behind a veil, and the menorah, the lamp, was on the outside of the veil. So it's quite possible that even when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement, he didn't even see the, the Ark of the Covenant. So you're not going to see the beautiful gold Ark of the Covenant. One priest would go in during the day to make sure that the uh, menorah was lit, to make sure the incense was going, because you had the menorah, the incense, and the table of showbread. But even then, only one priest once a day got a chance to see those beautiful things. If you were the typical Jew, the only thing you would get to see is bronze. You'd see the bronze laver, where the, the washings would happen. You'd see the bronze altar. You'd see bronze. Now, it's not that bronze isn't beautiful. The bronze isn't gold. So therefore, the idea of bronze represents judgment because as you walk towards the tabernacle, you're seeing I need to be washed because I'm dirty for my sins and I need a sacrifice for my sins in the altar. So bronze represents judgment. So when it says right there in verse 15, his feet were like fine brass, bronze, it's the idea of judgment. Next one, his voice is the sound of many waters. What a description. Let's go to Psalm 29. Unless you've ever been around a waterfall of any type of size, we don't really think of the idea of rushing water. Maybe if you go down to Grand Rapids when the Maumees have flooded or something, you may get that idea a little bit. But generally here in flat northwest Ohio, we don't really think about the sound of mighty rushing water. But this is a theme of the Lord. Psalm 29, we're going to do two quick psalms, they're not that long, and I want you to recognize the voice. The emphasis giving to the voice of the Lord. Psalm 29, verse 1, a psalm of David. Give unto the Lord, O you mighty ones, give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory to his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Paul's right there real quick. Why do we have worship? We have worship because it's giving the Lord the glory to his name. He's deserving of this. This is, this is why we have the time of worship. As we mentioned last week when worship came up, worship is never about us. It's about the Lord. Was God glorified in worship? And we just have to be very careful. We never turn worship into us. It's give God the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of his holiness. Now, note the repetition of the word voice. Three, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. 
The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. You can see the psalmist right here through the Spirit trying to describe the voice of God. Thundering, many waters, powerful majesty. Five, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord splinters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes them also skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord divides the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. In his temples, everyone says glory. Lord sat enthroned at the flood. The Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. The voice of the Lord. One more, please, Psalm 93, and we'll make a couple points. Now, I want to take the idea here, the voice of the Lord and water in Psalm 93, and let's tie this together. Psalm 93, the Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Please note, these are all the points we've already talked about here in Revelation. Throne, established, power, majesty, everlasting. Look at three. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, than the mighty waves of the sea. Your testimonies are very sure. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord, forever. So the flood is trying to show its power here with its voice, but look at verse 4. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. That's the voice of the Lord. It's that powerful, majestic voice that just carries authority, and that's what is speaking right now. Back to Revelation chapter 1. It's just full of Old Testament allusions here in verses. 16, he had in his hand, uh, right hand, seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp twisted sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Okay, we've already talked about seven stars. The seven stars answer is given in verse 20 right there. Uh, That's the idea of the seven messengers, which we'll get into more later. Two-edged sword, five references in the book of Revelation, is the idea of the sword coming out of his mouth, that his word is a weapon. His words are are, are there as this sword that attacks. And the word for sword right there is an interesting word. It's a word that's used very rarely in the New Testament. And it's a powerful weapon used to destroy. I mean, that's the point of this. So when it's giving this reference here of his mouth when a sharp two-edged sword, that's not cuddly, folks. That's, if you were reading that, you would stop and say, oh boy, that's destructive, And that's what you're going to see here through the book of Revelation is the idea of these multiple references to the sword and the destruction that comes out. In fact, when he returns at the second coming in Revelation 19, he returns with the sword coming out of his mouth. His word comes and destroys. And the last description here is like the sun shining in its strength. Now, I don't encourage you to do this, but you guys know this, I would hope, at this age. You can't stare at the sun. And please don't try. But the idea here is you can't stare at the sun. It's too much. Isn't this interesting that this is repeated throughout the Bible, that when somebody sees Christ, this is where we get the phrase, they saw the light. You know, look how Paul described when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. It says, at midday, O king, along the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, shining around me and those who journeyed with me. Can you imagine something brighter than the sun? How about in Matthew 17 at the transfiguration? And it says, he, meaning Jesus, was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. I can't imagine anything brighter than the sun. 
but this is the description of his beauty. The only reaction to this is verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Now, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but we have to present what the Bible says. When people run into an angelic being for the most part in the Bible, and we're going to talk about this, this is the typical reaction to meeting something of heavenly origin. Abraham fell. Samson's father fell. Ezekiel fell. Daniel fell. The disciples on the Mount Transfiguration, they all fell when they realized who they were talking to. Those who do not fall down, at least it's not recorded in the Bible that they fell down, they all recorded as basically reaching a point of, woe is me, I am under judgment, I cannot stand before this holiness. This is repeated throughout the Bible with Job, Isaiah, Zacharias, Peter, Gideon. These people, when they saw the heavenly messenger, be it God or an angel, they do this. I am very, very leery. When I see a book or an article where somebody says, the other day I ran into an angel and we just talked. Well, in the Bible, you fell down and passed out dead because it's utterly overwhelming. Now, I'm not trying to debate anybody. And, I, and I've had people come up to me and say, have you ever read this book? And no, I haven't. I, I, don't, I don't usually read those type of books. But I'm just telling you what the Bible teaches repeatedly, repeatedly, is when somebody runs into a, a messenger from heaven, either angel or deity, this is the reaction. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But isn't it amazing? Look what the Lord does in 17. But he laid his right hand on me. Oh, I love that. Right, he laid his right hand on me. Connection, touch. Now, what I find fascinating about this is this is John... The, the apostle that walked with Jesus for three years. So he knew Christ. But what's really interesting, when you, when you read these apostles, the book of James is a good example of this, where James, who seems to be the half-brother of Jesus, never once references he's the half-brother of Jesus. Why do they not do this? Why does John, John not say, oh, Jesus, good to see you again? Because it says in the book of Corinthians that we knew Christ in the flesh, but now we do not see him as that. So this is not the Jesus that he walked with for three years. Now, please don't mean that I'm saying that Jesus changed. This is Jesus in his glory. This is Jesus in his heavenly, just blessed state. And look what Christ says, verse 18, which we've covered already. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. That is a very, very deep phrasing that's going on right there, this idea, dead and living. It carries the idea that I'm continually living. I have defeated death. That's what it means. It's in that Hebrews chapter 2, that death, the enemy, has been defeated. And I'm alive forevermore. Death can no longer touch me. And, and this is where we now get into Romans, where Paul says, if you died with Christ, you'll live with Christ forever. Because if Jesus has defeated death forever, then I can have death be defeated forever by accepting him as my Savior. And you start to see the whole blessing. And if I don't attach myself to Christ, then how am I going to defeat death? I can't do that. And he has the keys of Hades and death. Please remember, Hades, it's different than hell. They're different words. Hell is the eternal final resting place of judgment for the dead. That's known as Gehenna, the lake of fire. We see in Revelation chapter 20 that Hades is cast into hell, Gehenna. Hades is the temporary place of, of, of holding of the lost right there. And we'll get into that later on in the book of Revelation. But when it says that he is the keys, keys represent authority. If you have keys... 
You have authority. You can get into places. I shared with you my uh, grade school memories of the janders walking around with all those keys, thinking that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. If you go look at my keychain right now in my office, I have a lot of keys on my keychain, and the reality is about four of them. I don't know what the other ones do, but I know I look cool. That's all that matters is I have my keys, and I look cool. I actually want to get one of the big circles, you know what I mean? And I want the little connecting thing so I can just pull it out and, and do that. And next thing you know, they're, they're changing the doors out here. We're going to get key fobs. So I don't even get to look cool anymore with keys. But the point is, keys represent authority. So if he has the keys to Hades and of death, he's the one that unlocks it. Folks, we're back to the idea of the Savior. He's the one that has defeated death. He's the one that's living forevermore. He's the one that has the key to get me out of death. Why am I not following him? Why am I not turning my life over to him? And he says in 19, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. A lot of people look at verse 19 as a typical uh, outline of the book of Revelation. The idea of the things that you have seen be chapter 1, the things which are be chapters 2 and 3, and the things that will take place after this will be chapters 4 on. And I was hoping to get into the introduction here of the uh, letters because there's just a lot of themes that need to be developed in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3. And one of the things that we were going to get into if we had time tonight was what Ryan referenced as well too is what does the angels, messengers represent? Are they human or are they heavenly? And we just don't have time tonight to get into that. So we'll have to start that up next week. Um, I do want to pause here real quick before we do announcements and prayer. Anybody got any quick questions about anything? I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. A lot of good stuff here tonight. And we'll make sure we're good. Everybody good? Okay. Please remember... The purpose of revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, verse 1. And I will say this again. We'll get into end times. But that's not the point and purpose necessarily of the book. The point and purpose of the book is the unveiling of understanding deeper who Jesus Christ is. And that's why this description of him in verses 12 through 16 is so vitally important. You see the claims to deity there. You see the claims to something bigger and deeper and more. And what an absolute wonderful blessing this is. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the time. May we truly stop and think about this description of you. Lord, the Son of Man, power, authority, glory, defeated death, alive forevermore, the first and the last. Lord, please let us surrender everything to you, all that we say and all that we do. We thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, in way of announcements here, we're in a very active season out here at church. And uh, first off, a big thank you to all the ladies that helped with the meal tonight. What a wonderful blessing that was. And speaking of the ladies that helped out with that, the writing of the word ladies that meet on the uh, first Wednesdays of the month at 445, they're starting to write out the book of Revelation. So if you're interested in that, uh, I have an insert that was here on Sunday. There should be still some in the back. If you're interested in getting involved with that, see Karen Schwebert. She will point you in the right direction there. Great opportunity just to get into the writing of the word. What else do we have going on? Uh, Operation Christmas Child kicking off. You know what this is. You take the shoebox, you fill the shoebox up, the church covers the shipping, and that box gets shipped all over the world. It blesses a child with Christmas, but most importantly, it blesses them with the gospel message. We're going to have a video here this coming Sunday to really kind of show that to you if you're not familiar with what that is. But that information's out there in the foyer as well. And once again, if you have any questions about that, you can see Karen Schwebert as well. Um, what else do we have going on? Please note Mom's Night Out coming up October 7th. Uh, new Ladies Bible Study started today over in uh, Napoleon on 11 a.m. 
Young adult group, you're meeting October 8th at 11.30 after the second service this coming Sunday. Please also note coming up October 8th is a game board fund for all ages from 2 to 5. You can see Jada. She's back in room 6. If you have any questions about that, that's open to anybody. And then also what we have going on, we have game night for the middle schoolers coming up October 15th. We have a sorting Christian materials for love packages the 14th. We have a courtesy team meeting going on the 14th as well too. And benefit for Sue Yee, mark your calendars right there. Contact Jamie Brown if you have any questions about that. That's going on October 22nd. And I think that's most everything that's going on. Prayerfully consider getting involved with those things that you feel led to get involved with. And we actually have four minutes. We could have got into Revelation chapter 2. But now we closed up the Bible. That means we have to be done. So, hey, you guys have a good week. God bless. Be safe out there. Please remember uh, they are going to start paving the parking lot here on Friday, so you are still going to be able to park on it on Sunday, so don't worry about that. They're just going to put the first coat down, and so they're going to come back on Monday and finish that up, so feel free to come out on Sunday, and you'll be able to park. It will be fine, but uh, a little bit of understanding here of the next couple of days as they're going to be doing some work on Friday and Monday with that as well. So hey, you guys have a good week. God bless, and we'll catch you next Wednesday. Take care.